coincidence that the Sunday school lesson yesterday was in the fifth chapter of Alma, which is identical, uh, the same subject exactly with the beginning of uh, Second Nephi. So we start off with Second Nephi, <coughs> and we really get into some pretty deep stuff. It begins with Lehi also speaks. Remember how the Odyssey now, all of those were home, who also were going home, were going home. Uh, only Odysseus Monos. Hiemonos, Nostan, Tonkai, okay, Nostan and Well, anyway, we won't go into that. But this is the way the Odyssey opens. Jerusalem is destroyed, Troy is destroyed, we're getting a new story, we're getting a new epic, so to speak. We're starting in the new world now. We've shifted the whole scene. It's a new act. Notice the fourth verse. Jerusalem is destroyed. So we can wipe that up and take that as finished now. And on the other hand, we have obtained a land of promise. Now there's a fresh beginning. A choice above all other lands. Now no map is given here, which the Lord God has come. It should be the land for the inheritance of my seed. Unto me forever and all those who should be led out of other countries. We're not the only people that are going to come here, obviously. And then there's only one condition to people being here. It tells us in the next verse. It's consecrated. This land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And this is the only restriction of people coming here is that God's aware of their coming. That's nice. Hit him again. Hmm? That is... Uh, that God is aware of their coming. Uh, you don't have to be a Nephite or a Lamanite here to come here now or in ancient times, either way. The, uh, the, uh, every time we find something, we used to find anything you'd find around, lying around, that was pre-Columbian, always had to be Nephite or Lamanite. Well, that isn't so at all. All sorts of people were coming before and after. The only condition being here, that the Lord knew that they were coming and he brought them here. As long as consecrated into him who shall bring, and if it so be, they shall serve him. <coughs> they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because of iniquity. See, but there is always the condition there. They shall never, unless it's because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land, the blessing and the curse. See, the, the, the baracha and the kalala always go together. You never get the blessing without the curse. And you might just as well say, <coughs> this <coughs> promised land is a cursed land. The promise is a curse on the land. It says so here, and many times. If iniquity shall be in the land, cursed shall be the land for their sakes, but unto the righteous it shall be blessed. It shall be both at once, the righteous and the cursed, to the righteous blessed, to the wicked cursed, same land, same place. And he says it's the same thing. It was the same thing with the former inhabitants of the land. Remember, if they had been righteous, would our fathers have pushed them out? No, not at all, he says. And so, it's both at once. You don't have it made just because this is the promised land. And then it talks about kings here, and this is an interesting thing, this next one. It is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations, because otherwise kings would take it over. Overrun the land, that there would be no place for their inheritance. And the... Uh, for behold, many nations would overrun the land if they wanted it, and it's going to tell us after this, it's going to be free of kings. This is a very important thing. <laughs> but remember, uh, it was kings that claimed it right from the first. As soon as they knew it was there, there's the donation of Constantine, supposed to be given in, in uh, 324, the year before the Nicene Council. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a forgery. It was came, came out of Reims, which is a forgery factory in the ninth, 8th and 9th centuries. And all these forgeries came out. Well, the donation of Constantine was a line that was given after, of course, after Columbus. But a line was drawn down the middle of the Atlantic, and everything west of that line belonged to the Roman Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, or the King of the Franks. The king was, was granted by the Pope. See, this is it's a fictitious document. But it was used a lot later on, the donation of Constantine, that everything in the New World belonged to, well, Charlemagne would have been the ruler of the Franks, not at that time, but uh, to the Frankish king or to the Holy Roman Emperor. See, kings would take it from, and who, who claimed it first right from the beginning? Well, claimed for the king of Spain, claimed for the king of England, claimed for the king of France. It was always the king that claimed it here. Claimed for the Russians on the west coast, later claimed for the Japanese emperor. Everybody claims it always in the name of kings. This is an important thing that they, they want to displace it that way. And of course the Dutch and the Portuguese, the same thing. It was all in the name of the king, but the Lord said, nope, that would not happen. 
It's a land of promise that inasmuch as they behave themselves, they shall prosper, the ninth verse, and shall possess this land for themselves. Now again, is this selfish? They'll have it all to themselves, oh goody goody, it's just for us. No, no, not at all. He says, inasmuch as they keep the commandments, and you'll soon find out what the commandments mean. Sharing and sharing equally. This is very important in the Book of Mormon. It brings it out all the time. That's the basic commandment, the one that Alma emphasizes so much. Now, the... Uh, but behold, now notice in the 10th verse, but behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle, it doesn't say if, it says when. When the time cometh, the Lord knows it's going to happen, it did happen, of course, that they shall dwindle in unbelief. After they've received so great blessings, this is the whole thing, you see, then, then they have to pay a heavier price than they ever would otherwise. They used to say in the, in the uh, already in the second century, they were saying the apostolic fathers all, the seven apostolic fathers all deal with this question. They used to say, God has invested so, much, so heavily in the church so far that he won't allow it to be taken away. The gospel can never be taken away because uh, God has already started us out. He's given us his blessing. It's going to be eternal. And, and uh, Clement and Second Clement and, uh, and Polycarp and, uh, and especially uh, Ignatius of Antioch in his seven letters, they say, that's all the more danger. The more blessing we've received, the greater danger therein. And as, uh, as Ignatius says, for if, quoting the scripture, for if the angels that kept not the first estate were cast down, how do you expect to be, after the blessings you have received, how do you expect uh, uh, to be supported no matter what you do? You're under stricter obligation to behave than anybody else. And if you don't, we're in greater danger. And so all the apostolic fathers look upon the future of the church as very bleak indeed. In fact, they... The curtain is rung down. Well, but having all the commandments from the beginning, we're in the 10th verse, the long verse, having all the commandments from the beginning, if the day shall come that they reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, and their Redeemer, their God, behold the judgment of him that is just shall rest upon them. He will bring other nations then, and they will take away from them. He's talking about the Nephites now, you see, that's, and the Lamanites, and they will take, the Lamanites are still losing, they're still losing ground. Astonishing things are happening now. Well, I won't go into that now. And, and take away from them the lands of their possession, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. And how that truth that was. Uh, and, of course, where have ever people been scattered and smitten as much and as long as the Indians? As can see, there have been other scatterings and smitings, of course, the Jewish being the, the classical one, but as a whole people being constantly pressed down, constantly, never given a chance, just ground down to nothing, as it tells us later in the Book of Mormon. Scattered and smitten, this is what happened. Believe me, they have been scattered, and they still are. They're still trying to, to get the Hopis and Navajos fighting each other so they can get the very last of their lands, because the oil companies and the, and the uh, Iranian people and the timber people and the coal, especially the coal, want uh, Navajo Mountain, the last possession and so forth. But they really, and the Book of Mormon is going to talk about that too later on. So it's awake, rise from the dust. Hear the words of a trembling parent. Oh no, now here is this 13th. Oh, that you would awake, awake from a deep, deep sleep. Notice he's addressing them as already in a deep, deep sleep, and they remain that. This is a voice like a dream. And here in the 14th verses of the passage, it was the first, it was the hardest criticism against the Book of Mormon. They thought this just wiped it out because of this passage here, the 14th. Hear the words of a trembling parent whose limb must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave, grave from which no traveler can return. You see, now see, that's right, taken right out of Hamlet, nothing else. That isn't what Hamlet says at all. And of course, the normal, the ordinary epithet for the world of the dead, both for the Greeks in Babylonian term, is Eretz Latari, the land of no return. They always called it the land of no return. That was the regular title for it. We talk about that in the book, uh, Behind the Desert, I think, or the, uh, since Camorra. But, uh, of course, what, what Shakespeare does say, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the fear of something after death, that land uh, from whose burn no traveler returns, puzzles the mind and lets it, makes us rather bear the ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus fortune doth make cowards of us all. At enterprises of great pith and moment, uh, in this regard, 
their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. You see, he mixes all sorts of metaphors there, beginning right at the beginning. You know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Uh, taking up arms against a sea as compared with the arrows and the like. But what he says here, you see, but that the fear of something after death, that unknown country from whose born no traveler returns. That's the way he puts it, an unknown country from whose born no. And here he says here, the doesn't say anything about a land, the grave from whence no traveler can return, and that's all you say. And of course, this is, this is the classic statement, as I say, the Babylonian name for it is the Aret Slatari, the earth of no, the land of no return. He doesn't even call it the land, he just says it's the grave from whence no traveler can return. You expect him to say that and so forth. But to be surprised how that has been exploited, this absolutely proves the Book of Mormon is a fraud. Because Joseph Smith got it out of Hamlet, obviously, but it's not the quotation from Hamlet at all. Well, anyway, and now we come to a very interesting thing. The point of this is, this uh, second Nephi, these chapters now, he's dealing with the atonement. And this is a very important thing, the atonement is. And whether to talk about it now or a little later, because he's going to get into it quite deeply here. But he says, I am circled about eternity, eternally, with the arms of his love. Now, this is an extremely common figure in Egyptian and so forth. I mean, if it sounds evangelic or something like that, don't fool yourself, this is standard. Should I read this other thing about the atonement? Maybe I should now. The, uh, well, let's go on here. And he says, I desire that you should remember to observe the statutes and judgments. Note the formula, the Dead Sea Scrolls formula, always, Mishpatim and Kavim, the statutes and judgments. That's, that's a pair that always go together, especially in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The statutes and judgments of the Lord, you'll find them elsewhere. This hath been the anxiety of my soul from the beginning. He is worried. Nephi is worried, and he ends up in deep despair, and Jacob picks it up in even deeper despair, so things go down all the time. And I have feared, notice he says in the 17th verse, I have feared that you will be cut off and destroyed forever. Well, already we see we're getting the idea of the atonement. Encircled eternally in the arms of love, and the, and the alternative is to be cut off and destroyed forever. Because, as you should all know by now, of course, atonement is at one, is one of the few English words like forgiveness uh, that, uh, and righteousness that uh, are theologically, theological technical words. It's one of the very few that's used. It's only used once in the New Testament, which is in Romans 5 and 11. <laughs> And the new revised standard version of the Bible, used by most churches, doesn't appear at all. They've changed it everywhere to reconciliation. So what is meant by atonement? It's a very important thing. Now, as I say, it just happened to be the lesson yesterday. And uh, here is what's the best things to put them. All right, here we go. W.J. Wolfe, in the most recent writing on the atonement, very recent one, uh, says there is not a single New Testament document, not a single New Testament doctrine of the atonement. Well, I'm not going to give you the Hebrew background. You'll find the whole Hebrew background in the tenth chapter of the book of Hebrews, where the whole thing as carried out in the temple by the Jews is regarded as a similitude of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the way Paul interprets it. But that's not the way most people interpret it. There are other interpretations. It says here, as Wolf says, there is not a single New Testament document of the atonement. There is simply a collection of images and metaphors from which subsequent tradition built. Tradition has tried to decide what parts of this picture should be taken literally and what parts metaphorically. We have all sorts of things here. The, uh, yeah. Katalige here. Various words that are used for it, translated with it in the Bible and theological writings. Here, yeshiva, kapar, and I have a dozen of them here. I'll refer to them presently. But he goes on and says, uh, which parts to be taken literally and which metaphorically? What are we talking about? The atoning blood of Christ and so forth. <laughs> what degree does it atone? What do you mean by atoning? How can it at one a thing? And this has developed extended rationales. It's personalized in Isaiah 53, he goes on. Images include the ransom, the buying free of a slave with emphasis on the costliness. This is called the commercial interpretation. You hear that too, you've sinned and Christ will pay the price. There is emphasis on forgiveness of sin as in Mark 14, Matthew and so forth. The image of the lamb developed by John. 
The main issue is whether the atonement is the completion of the Old Testament sacrifice or is something independently alone which, and standing alone which the Old Testament simply foreshadowed, which of course is what we believe. Now, uh, and in 1930 there was quite a revolution caused by Ollion's book called Christus Victor, and this caused a sir. There are three main interpretations of, of uh, atonement. One is the classical interpretation of the Greek fathers, which integrates incarnation, atonement, resurrection, and uses the image of a military contest. Onward, Christian soldiers, the inevitable victory of Christ, we march behind, and uh, we're automatically saved because uh, we win, because we're the good guys, and so forth. And then there's Anselm's interpretation, which is being renewed today in a famous work of his called Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Man. And here, this is satisfaction, this is medieval. The Lord's honor has been damaged, so the gallant knight has to go out and avenge the honor to the person above him, to his Lord, of course. Now, God's sin has damaged the honor to God, and it has to be avenged. And Christ pays the satisfaction. There must be satisfaction. I mean, the casting down of the gauntlet. The, uh, there is the just, the justing in the field, the field of honor, uh, the, uh, the trial, the trial by, um, where they, they use various trials and, and tests. Uh, by ordeal, to see who's guilty and who isn't. All these things are medieval, Anselm refers to all of them. It's Christ who pays the price, he fights the fight, he vindicates the, his father's honor and so forth. Christ's death is undeserved, and this is the part he adds to it, that Christ's death is undeserved as, and as necessarily superfluous, therefore all that spare blood is, is to our advantage. Remember in the, uh, in Marlowe's, in Marlowe's uh, Faustus, he says, see how Christ's blood streams through the firmament? One drop of it will save me, just one drop, oh my Christ. The idea that one drop of Christ's blood is so precious that it will save all of us, we don't have to do a thing. And this is Anselm, and that's left over, along with the idea of satisfaction to be paid for God's honor, which is damaged by sin. The Roman Catholic Catechism today defines sin as any damage done to the glory of God. Uh, who can damage God's glory, for heaven's sake? <laughs> you must be something if you can damage God's glory. You can't do it at all. Uh, detract from it in any way. Well, what, what is the sin then? I say, these various interpretations, it's damaged ourself is what it's done. It's, notice this is what it's done. It's cut off and destroyed forever. That's the alternative here. But uh, who other, what other interpretation? And then there is Christ, uh, Calvin's interpretation, the Reformation theory, that Christ as a substitute endured God's punishment so we wouldn't have to endure it again. And there's something to be said for all of these, you'll notice. When uh, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, remember there was a ram caught in the thicket. And the angel said, lay, lay, lay not thy hand upon the lad, here is a substitute. You don't have to sacrifice Isaac, you have to sacrifice the ram. And the rabbis tell us, the Talmud tells us that the name of the ram was Isaac. So this was Isaac, because in the rites of the tabernacle, later the temple, Aaron and his sons would place his, their hands upon the head of the ram or the bullock and transfer not only their guilt, but their personalities to it, so to speak. And then when that was killed, they were killed. It was the equivalent of them. It was a substitute sacrifice. See, Rosenberg has recently written a, a very interesting book on that subject. But it's the idea of the substitute sacrifice, and Christ is substituted that way. This was the uh, theory, and there's something to be said for it, because the work of the temple is proxy all the way through. And we can't pay the price, certainly. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, the Reformation theory includes that and the Protestants' justification by faith. It's faith that will do it. And this dispenses with Anselm's apparatus. Thousands of times I used to hear in Germany, nur glaube, only faith. Faith alone will do it all, you see. But uh, we're told, as James says, faith without works is dead and so forth. But uh, faith, we're told, dispenses with Anselm's rather elaborate medieval apparatus. Uh, and the Roman Catholics call the atonement the apparatus that mediated salvation, just as it calls the church, the plant or the factory which creates, uh, which produces salvation. Heilmach uh, and Anstalt, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a great machine that carries that, that, that does the work, and the institution is the impressive thing. And then there's Hugo Grotius and Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans, uh, later on, Grotius the Dutchman, and that is the rectoral or governmental theory. It's all done in the public interest. Christ's death has a deterrent effect on sinners and so forth. So we have these various things. But uh, 
I think we have an, an interesting lesson in, in philology here. We might well refer to it, what the meaning of the word is. Well, strangely, the Book of Mormon gives us the most clear-cut connection between the ancient word kaporeth and our old English atonement, atonement, and so forth. Now, the first thing to notice, the word atonement is unique in touching all bases. The other words will cover part of it. One part takes care of, for example, reconciliation. That is the commonest re uh, rendering of the word, which is katalage. But katalage doesn't mean, that means changing back again where you were. <laughs> it's the same thing as yeshiva in Hebrew. Yeshiva is, means a, a return. You return to where you were, but you can never come back. You can't go back, you can't go home again after you've sinned after that. That has to be washed away. Well, there's your baptism and so forth. But the idea is to return, but how can you return to a presence if you never were there before? All throughout the doctrine of atonement is assumed pre-existence, returning to the presence of the Father, coming home again and so forth. Like the Pearl, the earliest Christian hymn is beautiful on that particular subject. But the word, the Greek word, used in Romans 5 and 11 is katalage, and there it's called atonement, mean made one with the Father again. And this is made one in a very, very special sense. Now, reconciliation, you have a settlement or an understanding, but that doesn't make you one, you see. And then redemption, that's another common one. The price is paid, that's right, and you, it's got you off. But you don't even have to know the person who paid the price, let alone be one with him. You have to, this is being one. This goes beyond having the price paid. And then salvation means you're safe home again. But you're not one with anybody in particular. There's no specification in what sense this is to be taken. And then uh, yeshiva, the Hebrew returning, repentance. But where's the oneness again? And the keper helaskistai, keper. Now this is the common, keper is the Hebrew word. Uh, you, you all know about yom kippur and so forth. So the root is keper. Well, K-A-P-E-R if you want, and Kippur is the, the act of, of atoning, Kippur, and uh, that's Helaskistai, and, and it refers literally to the covering of the ark, covering of the mercy seat. The, ka the kaporet, the kaporet, the things that covers, is the Helasterion, where God appeared to forgive the sins of the people. It was the end, it was the, it was the front curtain, or the veil of the tabernacle. And after the people have com had completed all the rites and ordinances of atonement, then the veil was parted and the Messiah was supposed to, not the Messiah, but God was, well, God in this case, of course, Savior, was supposed to speak from the tabernacle and tell the people that their sins were forgiven and they were welcome to his presence. That's this idea of being taken back into his embrace, his embrace again, encircled eternally in the arms of love. Now, uh, the word I say, kafar, is a very interesting, as far as that goes, to atone for. The word is kafar, kippur. Uh, we've had this before, of course. Uh, kippur. And it's just kafar. And that means that's our word cover. It's cognate with our word cover. It's pronounced cover. Kafar, yon kippur. So we have cover. But that's just the beginning of the, of the word here. It's a very interesting one. And, uh, in fact, I better put that down. Didn't even forgot to put it here. The, it's the same in Aramaic. And... Cover is kapara, it's to cover over your sins. And this is the way the, uh, this is the way the uh, Jastro's big two-volume lexicon explains it. It means to arch over, to bend over, to cover, to pass over with the hand, especially the palm of the hand. See, the word for palm of the hand in all Semitic language is kaf, kafar, means to cover. Hence, to grasp by the hand, to wipe over. Hence, to cleanse, to expiate, to forgive, to renounce, to deny, to be found, to encircle. All these in this one word. Well, this is nothing in Arabic. If you don't have 50 different, totally different meanings for a word, you, you think it's, it, your la language is impoverished. But here, the, uh, it means that basically cover embrace is the idea. Therefore, you cover a person. And this is a very interesting thing because here the Book of Mormon casts a rather, I would say, dazzling light on the subject. Uh, and kafaf and kafar mean the same in Aramaic, kafaf and kathar. Uh, I will put kafaf here. And uh, this is the Egyptian hefet. Well, we won't we'll get ahead of the things here. We've marked it down yet. Uh, this is the situation uh, vi uh, vividly had sent forth in the Book of Mormon. This is what it is. I remember old, old Professor Popper imagined in the years when I took Hebrew and Arabic at Berkeley, I was the only student taking those. Today, there are 20 teachers of both there. That's how, how things have changed since then. I was Popper's only student, and he took it out on me. Uh, 
And but he he went he was he would grow a rabbi he would grow quite eloquent on this particular subject of the the kafata and the ketef and in Hebrew of course this was in the Arabic class he talked about the the kafaf well we get it here in uh, we've got it all down here so let's turn to it now the Arabic is kafata and the Egyptian word is kafet they all go together uh, Egyptian. Uh, and notice the uh, the ideogram is an arm and two arms embracing somebody. Kafata, and of course you get the 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 Coptic word from that, which we get our word kaftan, which is a long monk's robe with a hood that covers you completely. It goes completely over your head. That's a kaftan. Kafata. This is oh, excuse me. Ke, pe. And this is the same word as the Latin capto, which means to embrace, to capture, to hug around. It's quite universal. And our word covering the rest, and calf capto. So we're talking fundamentally, uh, not, and the Jews go into various interpretations. Well, I say, it, it means all these things. The basic meaning to arch over, to bend over, to cover, therefore to cover your sins, to wipe them out, to forget them, to pass over with the hand, the palm of the hand, hence to wipe over, therefore to cleanse, to expiate, therefore to forgive, therefore to renounce, to deny, and then to be found in the basic meaning of back to encircle again, such as encircling a city, a town, a person, or anything else. And so we have in Nephi, second Nephi, if we just go ahead to the fourth chapter here, we have a vivid desert episode here. Talk about one of those dazzling little vignettes. It's here. Nephi describes himself as running away from his enemies. See, he's been oppressed terribly. His big brothers have never le left dogging him. They've been after him all the time. He's been given a rough time by everybody. The family sort of resents his being the leader anyway, being the, the youngest until his two brothers were born there. And then he says, May the gates of hell be shut continually, 32nd verse here, the fourth chapter, before me, because my heart is broken, my spirit contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of righteousness before me, that I may walk now, that I may walk in the path of the low valley. Now, in a thing like the, the Rechel Beni Hilal, a person escaping from his enemy always wants to take the low, quick, straight path as far as he can get away from it. The easiest path to take and the shores to escape, not having to run up and down any hills or anything like that. Wilt thou... Uh, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict, that means sticking right to the path, that's the tariq, you see, with Derekashakim, the end of the first psalm, remember, Derekashakim tovev, the way of the wicked shall be lost in the sand, you see, it goes that way, that my way may not be, that I may be strict in the plain road, that I may stick to the proper path. Then wilt thou encircle me about with the robe of my righteousness. Now, this is an Arabic idol. When a person is running away, he, he runs to the tent, and he great shaykh he can, he can find, and he goes in, and he kneels down before the shaykh, and he says, Anadakilak, I am thy suppliant. And the shaykh is then obligated to put, him, uh, to put his kaftan, put his kafet, over his kafet, which is the same word as shoulder, put his, the hem of his garment over his shoulder, and say, Ahlan uh, wasahlan ramarhaban, your, this is your tent, this is your family, Ahlan Sahlan, see the Hebrew word Ahl for family, is the Arabic word Ahl for, uh, Hebrew word uh, Ahl for tent is the same as the Arabic word Ahl for family. But Ahlan Wasatlan and Marhaban, and a wide place, we'll make way for you, we'll make a place for you. And then the Lord, or the chief, is under obligation to defend you against the enemies that are chasing you. You are now a member, you are now under his protection, this is part of the medieval code, you see. You are under his protection and he will protect you. And this is what we have here. Wilt thou encircle me with the robe of thy righteousness? He wants him to, he's running away, he wants the plain road so he can get away from his enemies, and wants to be encircled with the robe of righteousness. Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me while them? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? A stumbling block is the Greek word scandal, it means a scandal. It's anything you trip up on when you're running, is a scandal, what you bump your toe on, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, Hebrew word is Eben Kashal, uh, which means a rock of stumbling, a stone of offense. It's called, sometimes it's called, remember, it's called a stumbling block in the Bible, sometimes a rock of offense. Anything that will trip you up, you're trying to go somewhere, you're making a nice thing of it, and all of a sudden you fall flat on your face. That's dangerous. So he says, don't let that happen to me. Uh, do not place a stumbling block, but 
that thou wouldst clear my way before me and hedge not up my way, but the ways of mine enemy. Make his way hard as far as that goes. Now this is a, that picture I showed of the Arab riding from the time of Lehi, the Arab riding his camel, and uh, it says, and he was escaping from his enemies. That's what he is doing. He's running for dear life here. And that's what we have here. And But notice how the image is. Will you, uh, I will come to you and make the way strict for me so I can get to, and then when I go to you, will you put the robe of your righteousness around me and I will be in your protection. My enemy, meanwhile, is blocked in the sand. He's wandering around. He doesn't know where he's going. He's lost. He's been blocked. But don't put any stumbling block in my way so that I can escape. So we have these... Uh, these interesting situations here. And then, if we turn to Alma 5.33, this idea of being embraced is very strong in the Book of Mormon here as an expression for the atonement. Alma, that's what the Sunday School lesson was yesterday. That's how I happened to stumble on this. He sendeth an invitation to all men, for the, arms for the arms of mercy are extended toward them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. This is the embrace. He's willing to take you. Notice, come unto me and partake of the fruit of the tree of life. They eat and drink, come into my camp, drink of the water and the breads of life frequently. He will take you in when you are running away. And he says, and his invitation, his arms are extended. And again, right here in Second Nephi, 115, we have it right here in, this, in the chapter we're on right now, the 15th verse, where he says, Behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory. I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. That's what God has started here. So it's eternal. It's the embrace he's in. So we have this ideogram. And the opposite of that you'll find in Alma 5 and 7. We are on Alma 5 anyway. He notices the opposite is, is the very same thing. Behold, he changed their hearts. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light and the everlasting word. Yea, they were encircled around by the bands of death. That's the other encircling. Satan can encircle you too. They were encircled about by the bands of death, and this is what at one moment is. See, you can't, well, I'll m mention that presently. And the chains of hell and everlasting destruction. And you get the same negative idea right back here in uh, the 10th verse 2. And I ask you, on what condition are they saved? Yea, on the grounds that they are to hope for salvation. What is the cause of their being loosed from the bands of death? Yea, also from the chains of hell. In the ones you are bound tight to one person, in the other you are bound tight to another. And there's nothing ever mentioned about anything in between the two, which is a very interesting thing. We have the opposite. Uh, and the opposite of oneness is in the chapter we're on now. This 25, notice the 25th verse. I exceedingly fear and tremble because of you, he says. I know that he hath not sought power over authority, that's Alma, but has sought to glory. Now, what are we talking about here? Uh, 1 and 25. Yes, 125 and 57. For you have sought... No, where he talks about it? Well, he talks about it in 57. You better talk about it in 57. Oh, I'm looking in the wrong thing. Uh, it's Alma 5. The Sunday school was in yesterday, 25 and 57, where he says, uh, yes, now this is the alternative to being embraced, to being taken in the family. I'm sure, nay, except ye make our Creator a liar from the beginning, to suppose that he is a liar from the beginning, you cannot suppose that such can have place. Remember, he says, Nephi says to, to uh, Zoram, he says, you come down to our father's tent in the desert and you can have place with us. Marhaban means have a place with us. And here he uses that term again, Alma says. Uh, but uh, suppose that such can have place in the kingdom of heaven, but they shall be cast out for they are the kingdom of the devil. See, they have the opposite is to be cast out and not included and thrown out of the house as far as that goes. In the 57th verse of the same chapter, these are just at random. Come ye out of the wicked, and be ye separated, and touch not their unclean things. Notice, their names of the wicked shall not be mingled with the names of the people. The idea is being cast out, cut off completely. And that's what we're talking about here. The, and then uh, Hebrews 10. In the... Uh, now here, we talk about something. 251, I think it is. We have a section on this, the Egyptian rite of embracing at, at the veil, for example. Remember, the, the uh, Kippur, the Kippur, is also the front veil of the tabernacle, which the Lord parted to grant the people atonement after they have performed all the ordinances necessary on the Day of the Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month. 
That was when he greeted them and claimed that he was one with them. So the emphasis on at one. See, it's this oneness that makes all the difference in the world that you can't get anywhere else. Well, it's good that this word survived, came right through in the English Bible, ne never questioned and so forth, uh, as against the alternatives which are used today. But here is a, a picture from the 25th dynasty. This, is the, this would be the... This would be the... Um, the Ethiopian dynasty, and uh, this would be the last king of the dynasty, uh, Taharka, I guess it would be Taharka, Kashta, Kashta Taharka, would be the last, it says here anyway, the last king of the 25th dynasty, oh, they're the ones that gave her the Shibako stone, so Shibako is the second king of the line, but you notice this is what's happening, it tells us here what's going on, the king is being embraced by his father after uh, obtaining all things, and this shows embracing on both sides, and here, the brace on one side, embrace on the other side, and this one is the 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 uh, the heavy weight that was worn in the back of the uh, of the Selkit emblem. Now Selkit is always represented as the embracing. With notice the the ideogram here is the embracing. Uh, the two arms are embracing, and they're embracing the Jed symbol, the Jed which represents uh, the marrow and the bones is what that represents. It's, and this is called health and strength. He, he says here, I give thee, G-N-E-C, Anech, Was. Anech, this is a picture of the word, symbol for life, is a picture of the, actually the, the umbilical cord, the navel, and the other is Was, which is always rendered as power in the priesthood, uh, authority to speak for priesthood and so forth, and also this is the embrace. So he's embracing, what do we say about it here? Yes, he says, I give to thee all life and power, these are the symbols of embracing. The two fans are protectively protect the king when he went forth, according to Moray. They embrace him on either side. The king always had those two fans, called the shuet or the kabat. And, uh, yes, kabat, that's right, kabat, or the, the shuet. And the two parts of the, this is the counterweight, which hangs on the breast to impart breath and life. The two arms protrude from the jetson. So this is the, when the king, at the final climax, here we have the, the process going on from a, a famous picture at Kar uh, in the temple at Karnak, where the king first is, the ordinance is usually he's washed here, and then he is clothed here, he receives the clothing, and he's anointed, then he is introduced into the presence of the king, and then the king is going to embrace him, and the final step is this embrace, and it happens at the last. So this idea of being one, you can't be closer to a person than you embrace. Now in a recently discovered fragment, a, well not a fragment, it's practically complete, and that is the Apocryphon of John, a very old Coptic fragment. Uh, you have the story of John and Jesus when they're little kids. They're just little, little children, and they meet for the first time in the house of Elizabeth, and they rush to each other and embrace, and they fuse into one person. Now, this is a story that's picked up and used a lot later, but it shows the oneness of what the embrace is. It is an atonement of one. To be taken back completely is something quite different than just to be forgiven, to be excused, to be bought off, all of those other things. This idea is to be taken back into the presence, and that's why the Jews call it the zakar, you see, the remembrance of the meshiva, the remembrance of returning to the place you remember is what it is. And I say the earliest Christian hymn, that marvelous Syriac hymn called the, called the Pearl, talks about the person coming down, leaving his heavenly father and mother coming down and sinning in the world, how he has to the struggle he has to get back again to be greeted by the family again when he returns. Now notice these parallels. Well, what has the Egyptians got to do with it? One of the most interesting explanations was given a hundred years ago by President Joseph F. Smith. I mean, this is, he was ages ahead of scholarship, which is just catching up with him now. And uh, he says here, President Joseph F. Smith in 1888, said, undoubtedly knowledge of this law and of other rites and ceremonies, talking about the atonement, was carried on by the posterity of Adam, uh, was carried by the posterity of Adam into all lands, and continued, uh, yes, and continued with them, more or less pure, to the flood, and through Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, to those who succeeded in him, spreading out into all nations and countries, this is described, the process is given, in the book of Moses, right from the beginning, very clearly what happened, how they spread, and thus all nations became, they corrupted it everywhere, but they received it anyway. And then, what wonder then, he, spreading to all nations and countries, 
What wonder then that we should find relics of Christianity, so to speak, among the heathens, not surprising at all, the nations who know not Christ and whose histories date back to the days of Moses and even beyond the flood, independent of any apart from the records of the Bible. And of course, we can pick up fragments that look uh, like the gospel all over among the Indians and wherever you go and the, the Maoris and the like. It's been a great thing in the spreading of the gospel. I'll tell you a lot of stories about that. Uh, the ground taken by infidels, uh, that Christian, that Christianity sprang from the heathen. See, when this was discovered at the end of the last century, there were parallels that began, in, well, way back in 1856, when they discovered at Nippur, they discovered the Babylonian story of the flood, and it looked just like the Genesis Bible of the flood. So everybody says, aha, this is the original story. This is because the document was far older than any Hebrew documents we had. But it was only 6th century BC. It was only from the time of Paul, the last one. And uh, since then, of course, a very interesting thing happened. They said there must be an older flood story than that, you see. And uh, actually, the, the Old Testament is much, much older version. That was discovered uh, when World War I broke out, and then the University of Pennsylvania was a big fun. They were going back to look for, for the, the old tablet at Nippur. They were going to find a Sumerian version of the flood. And they couldn't go because of the war, so alas, they had to stay home and look through the stuff they already had. And the first thing they found was, was the Nippur tablets they were going to look for, spent a couple of million bucks looking for it, was already there all the time. They never bothered to see what they find. They like to go out and dig up other stuff. <coughs> they like these jobs and so forth. But anyway, which is the older version? Well, you'll find it everywhere and in various, in various stages of decay and interpretation. But they say that this proves that it sprang from the heathen because the heathen documents are older. Well, they know they aren't older now. It being found that they have many rites similar to those recorded in the Bible and so forth. That's only a vain and foolish attempt, he says, to show off, well, I say to show off superior scholarship. For if the heathen, quoting Brother Smith, for if the heathens have doctrines and ceremonies resembling those in the scriptures, it only proves that these are the traditions of the fathers handed down and that they will cleave to the children to the latest generation, though they wander into darkness and perversion, until but a slight resemblance to their origin, which was divine, can be seen. Now this is our argument in the genesis of the written word. The argument is definitely on President Smith's side, for as he observes, the Bible account being the most rational, indeed the only historical one, see when you're talking about atonement, only the scriptures will explain why this is necessary. And the ancients don't have atonement. See, there's no Egyptian word for sin. The whole idea is quite different here. They say, and what do you do if you don't have the atonement? What is your view of life with the Greeks and so forth? You see, I sin, well, all people do that. I'm, you can't help that, everybody does that. Life is hard and so forth, so we all sin. And uh, what, what happens as a result of that? There's no, no atonement, no forgiveness, no, no hereafter, anything. So the only alternative is the tragic view of life. And all the ancients have this, tra this terribly tragic view of life. You've either got the atonement, come back home and be one, or you are going to have this infinitely tragic view of life. We're going nowhere, and that's... It's absolutely basic in, in, uh, in, in the Greek tragedy, for example. You do have redemption, you do have forgiveness, you do have all those other things, but they're about the hereafter, the atonement, the life, eternal, and so forth. That they, none of them have, and of course, the old Nor and the Norse sagas, it's even more poignant, it's terrible, it tears you apart. Well, uh, Well, now, this is interesting. I might as well mention it here. Uh, here's an article by Isidore Levi. I'm quoting here. The farther back we go in Israelite tradition, the more consistent and sensible the ordinances of the atonement come. Because the Jews are just as confused on as anybody else. Notice all those definitions I gave. Which word covers it? <coughs> the only word covers it is atonement, our English word, and there's no equivalent of that anywhere else. Nobody has that at one business. The... Uh, they have the returns, I say they have yeshiva, they have kippara covering up, they have forgiveness and all those, they're all partial. But there was a teaching that the sacrifice of Isaac was the great atoning sacrifice of Israel, and this is commonly held, in quoting Rabbi Levi, the offering to Isaac was an atonement for Israel. Isaac offered himself as a free-willed offering. That's what the Akedah is. Akedah means a binding. He offered himself to be bound. He was willing to be bound. He wasn't forced to be, so he gave a free-will offering, see, like as the Savior did. The offering of Isaac called the Akedah. Uh, he's got it with usually a K. Boy, my handwriting gets worse and worse. Uh, which means the binding, because Isaac submitted of his own free will to be bound and offered. It is even maintained that he was actually put to death on the occasion 
He was killed, slain, and burned on the altar. Remember, he brought the wood, bore it on his own back. He brought the wood, <coughs> and he was burned. It was reduced to ashes. And then on the spot, the Lord resurrected him. And it has to be the resurrection. The atonement has to be followed by the resurrection. Otherwise, why are you atoned if you're just going to cease, cease to exist from that moment on? That's why the ancients are left out in the cold. It is even maintained that he was actually put to death on the occasion and then restored. And then we're quoting from Bernard Baer here. Uh, well, from it's the Talmud. And Isaac received his spirit again, while the angels joined in a chorus of praise. Praise be to the eternal, thou who hast given life to the dead. So a resurrection was celebrated by the death of Isaac. But of course, Isaac wasn't put to death. There was a substitute for him, the ram in the thicket. He didn't complete the sacrifice at all. <laughs> it's, it too was only a similitude. Though most of the Jewish teachers reject the resurrection on the spot idea, writes R.A. Rosenberg, still even for them, Isaac was the perfect sacrifice, the atonement offering that brings forgiveness of sin through the ages. It's an eternal sin offering. The Jews say it must have been Isaac. The trouble is, as everybody, including the Jews themselves, point out, that Isaac was not sacrificed, but another, a ram, was offered him instead, still looking forward to the great sacrifice to come. And the sacrifice of the ram was continued in the temple, long after Abraham and so forth, as a similitude to the great and last sacrifice until it actually took place. But it was carried on after. Uh, well, the, uh, let me read the conclusion to what Wolf has to say about this here. Atonement <coughs> as an experience, as an expression of the mystery of God remains the reality at the core. It's the mystery of God. <coughs> Interpretations of the how and why of the process multiply as images and metaphors expand into theories and become in turn ancillary or dominant only to dissolve and give way to other theories and changing cultural configurations which reappear later in new shapes and new relationships. It's constantly being processed, trying to grasp this idea of the atonement. It's going on all the time, he says. Well, there's no better handbook for grasping it than the, the Book of Mormon. See, we have to, to get along here. Um, but now he goes on with more imagery that's very interesting. And... Uh, they observe the statutes and judgment. I have feared that you would be cut off. See, there's the alternative. That's what gives us. You're either embraced in his arms or you're cut off and encircled by the chains of, by the arms of death, the chains of death, and the other thing that encircles you. But behold, his will be done in spite of his despair. He says, inasmuch as you keep my commandments, you will prosper inasmuch as you do not keep my commandments, in verse 20 here, <coughs> ye shall be cut off from my presence. That's the cutting off. See, what can be closer to his presence than be in his embrace and one? And of course, that marvelous passage from, it comes pretty soon, I think. It's, it's the most beautiful in the Book of Mormon, I think. It says, the Holy One of Israel is the, the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employs no servant there. He will receive you personally, take your hand, give you the signs and tokens himself when you come, as he does to the Nephites later on. Remember, he and every one of them he receives individually, even the children, one by one. He blesses them and receives them. He just one calls each person by name and identifies himself to each one. And this is what, what we do here in the rite of the atonement in Israel. It's, it's very clear, as a matter of fact. When we go back, uh, well, in the Old Testament, we can't go. Exodus is where it's set forth, and then, of course, all the books of Moses, you're going to have the rite of atonement. It's very important here. But then what? Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness. One of the most famous came from Spain. The oldest manuscript of it comes from Spain. But that is, that is the Lorica. The Lorica, that means the armor of righteousness. It's a, it's a, it's a famous poem. Philologically, it's a very strange thing. Uh, Wiener, uh, Norbert Wiener's father, uh, who was a professor of philology at Oxford for many years, uh, at uh, Harvard for many years. Boy, I'm three sheets to the wind today. Uh, uh, he wrote a book about this, the, the Lorica. It's such a, a mix, strange mixture of language and everything else, and it describes the armor of righteousness as the whole thing. Seems to have been a very ancient tradition, both among the Hebrews and the Jews. He's talking about it here, the, uh, which, of course, it's a natural uh, natural defense, the lorica, the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound, there it is again, the present, and arise from the dust. Rebel no more against your brother. Were it not for him, we must have perished. He saved us, he's brought us through, he tells in the 24th verse. But I'm still afraid. I, he doesn't think he's making much progress. I, am exceed, I exceedingly fear and tremble because of you. He is not optimistic. He hath not power, uh, sought power or authority over you. 
And that which you call anger was the truth when he talked to you. The Spirit of the Lord opened his mouth that he could not shut it. If ye will hearken unto him, I leave unto you a blessing, yea, even my first blessing. But if ye will not hearken to him, I will take away my first blessing. Now Zoram, he is talking here to, he is talking here to, uh, is the exhortation to the whole family, isn't it? Yeah, he isn't, he's going to give their separate blessings later. No, notice Zoram is, he's a fifth wheel, he's another member, and he is married, one of the daughters of Ishmael, uh, the oldest one, and uh, they're together. And Zoram, he says, is going to be a true friend to Nephi forever, uh, like the Plataeans and the Athenians. And Thy seed shall be blessed with his seed. They'll be blessed together. Then the second chapter, well, the time is up now. Now he starts speaking of Jacob, his firstborn in the wilderness. He shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Notice the second verse here. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means uh, you'll get credit for enduring. Will you? Nothing, nothing that you endure, nothing you will go through that you won't, you won't be thankful for and glad of later on. He will consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. And again, now here we come in this fourth verse. We see that the Book of Mormon is the handbook of the atonement. Now the chapter goes on. This whole chapter is on the subject of the atonement. And here we're going to get a rather clear explanation of things. It goes with them when he starts out here. The spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way is prepared for the fall of man, and salvation is free. And men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. Uh, and then uh, this is the first basis, of course. Oh, we for forgot. This, of course, that, uh, that the conscience is absolutely basic because you're not going to have any atonement unless you have your guilt feelings and so forth. Uh, and this is a final idea. Why do we have so few, so many, uh, oh, put it this way. why do so few people know anything about the atonement? We're, we leave it up in the air. We don't know what we're talking about. And uh, why do, so, well, the question is, why do so few know anything about the gospel for that matter? But the point is, here is this thing which is the central point of the whole teaching of Jesus Christ, is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. The term is used over and over, it's dominant. It is a central figure, and yet there's, as we saw here, there's no agreement about it. People trying to figure out what it is. Well, there's one very good explanation of that. Of course, something's been taken away. Now, as we told you about Johann ben Zekai, they didn't want the temple. They didn't want any of this. Remember, the main purpose of the temple was the carrying out of the sacrifices of the atonement. That's where they go through. That's what you find described in the books of Moses. And the uh, rabbis, who were teachers and not priests, were glad to get rid of it. And then Zakkai took his school and went over in Jamnia and founded the first rabbinical school. And they don't want any of this, so these things were removed. They, that says the Book of Mormon tells us many precious things were removed. That's why people stumble. It's very obvious that something the atonement stands right there, and yet it's a vacuum. There's something, there's something so much, so missing there. And uh, the explanation, of course, is given very clearly at Nephi at the first, that many precious things have been removed. And uh, therefore, the people who stumble, many do stumble because of that, and, and the Gentiles stumble and so forth. But uh, it's obvious that that's happened. Now, the Book of Mormon replaces that. It replaces those parts that have been removed, and that's why why we need it, among other things. Precious things have been removed from the Bible.